welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. This is episode number 230, and it's actually a replay or a recast. We don't do this often. We don't typically re-air previous episodes, but the topic that we covered two years ago with our guest Mike Prevost on how to hike heavy is so relevant to all of us and to this time of year. We discuss with Mike how to really understand the dynamics of hiking with heavy loads, how to train for hiking with heavy loads, how much weight you should be carrying in your training, and much, much more. It's the time of year where we're 90 days out from September. Many of us are going to be spending time training with our pack systems in preparation for fall hunts, or at least we should be doing that. And so this information is just so valuable to us, to me personally, to Steve, and to you listening. So I hope you take the time to enjoy this one. If you haven't listened to this episode before, and this is all new to you, I know that you'll find value in it. And if, like me, this is a conversation that you are familiar with, or at least were familiar with a couple of years ago, a fresher listen is really going to be beneficial. So I hope you enjoy this one. Again, the guest is Mike Prevost. There are links in the description to learn more about Mike and to take deeper dives onto this topic. Thank you guys for tuning in. Here's the conversation. Well, Mike, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, well, happy to be here. You know, I'm reminded of something uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Seneca, an ancient Stoic philosopher, like to say is that uh, if he was offered knowledge and wisdom but was not allowed to share it, that he would refuse it. So, you know, I'm always happy to share anything I've learned. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, man, I, I ran across your stuff through uh, Dan John and Wow, do you do you certainly have some knowledge to share, and um, it's so cool to see um, more than just an opinion. Uh, you know, you've done and studied uh, research, and I think can bring some facts to a conversation, which is something that is always good more than just opinion. So we're excited to dive into this. Um, but before we dive deep, um, can you go ahead and give us an introduction and background, personally, professionally, so our listeners have some context? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So, uh, let's see my background. That's relevant. I guess the load bearing marches and exercise, that kind of a thing. Um, I, I spent my college years working as a pers- personal trainer in various gyms. I was uh, kind of a meathead weightlifter back in my younger days in my twenties. Uh, so I probably had about eight or nine years of personal trainer experience is how I paid my way through college. Uh, and back in the mid nineties, I finished a PhD in exercise physiology and was looking for something a little more adventurous to do than other than the typical college professor job. So I took a commission in the Navy and the medical service corps as, uh, an aerospace operational physiologist, which means, um, I was a specialist in human performance, any type of performance related issue, uh, primarily with aviation, but I work with lots of other communities. I work with, um, special forces, for example, special operations command, did some projects with them, for various uh, types of human performance. I've worked with Marine Corps uh, ground troops. I've worked with uh, Navy rescue swimmers and just a wide variety of communities and a whole lot of stuff with aviation. Um, As a consultant, some research, some training. Um, I was also the staff exercise physiologist at the Naval Academy. And uh, that was a tremendous, tremendous learning experience. What was really good about 
the Naval Academy, and this is where I really started to hone a lot of my knowledge about rucking, was I had, you know, 4,500 midshipmen, and uh, about a quarter of them were varsity athletes, so they were participating in some type of a sport, but three quarters were not, and they really didn't have anybody to go to for training advice, um, and but they had me, and I had the opportunity to work with hundreds and hundreds of midshipmen for all kinds of different uh, challenges from ultra running to you name it. But where I really got into rucking was some of the midshipmen were preparing for the SEAL screener to become Navy SEALs. And in the screener, they do a lot of rucking. Some of them were preparing for the EOD screener, same thing. Some of them were preparing for uh, Marine Corps uh, basic school, Um, you know, the infantry skills team who uh, competed in events that involved rucking. And so we got to experiment with lots of different training programs. And uh, that's, you know, when I did a real deep dive into the research literature to figure out what we know about rucking and incorporate some of that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, you know, we learned a lot about it. Awesome. So for the listeners, just to give context, um, as we talk about rucking, that's, you know, in military terms, pretty much, covering ground uh with loaded weight you know if you think of a soldier carrying you know body armor weapons you know maybe a pack with gear and that clearly translates uh to us as hunters when we are um, covering country and also loaded with you know maybe backpacking gear and a weapon and things like that so it's loaded movement over distance as we get into the research, I just want to understand kind of, and I know that the requirements vary clearly, but give us some idea of the types of weights and distances um, that these soldiers might be training for, be tested against, or might be performing in the field. Um, you know, what kind of weight range and distances are we talking about, or does the research kind of uh, focus on? Oh, well, uh, heavy. <laughs> So for, you know, for military rucking, the focus is always heavy. Uh, there's just not too many opportunities or where a soldier will be carrying a light load. So by heavy, I mean generally in excess of 100 pounds, so uh, 100 to 140 pounds, that kind of thing. Um, you know, e- even though, you know, we do a lot of helicopter insertion and resupply, um you know, things can happen really fast. So a soldier's got to carry a lot of ammunition, communication equipment, food, water, all kinds of stuff. And so just the minimum loadout becomes really heavy. I mean, uh, uh, just a flag jacket uh, or bulletproof vest is about 25 pounds. They're, they're carrying a rifle, you know. So we're training for uh, pretty heavy loads and really tough terrain. And, you know, the difference, the distance carried, really depends on the terrain and we tend to think more in times of in terms of time um you know how long can somebody ruck during a given day uh as opposed to distance because the distance just varies tremendously if you got you know an asphalt road versus rugged terrain in afghanistan you know the expectations are just much much different but um you know the ability to move that load for uh for hours during the day you know anywhere from six to you know, in extreme circumstances, um, 12 to 15 hours of walking with that heavy load is what you want to aim for. And, the, you know, the speeds vary too. You know, the, the typical training pace um, would be somewhere, uh, you know, and this is flat ground, somewhere uh, between two and a half to four miles an hour, depending on the load. 
Um, we don't typically train at a faster pace than that because what you find is by the time you hit about four miles an hour, that's about the fastest pace a person can maintain with a walking gait, maybe four and a half miles an hour for taller guys. But by the time you start breaking four and a half miles an hour, you have to transition from a walk gait to a run gait. And the difference is, um, you know, in a run gait for part of the part of the time, both feet leave the ground. And in a walking gait, you always have one foot on the ground. And so impact forces and and propulsion forces are much, much higher under run gate. There's a real qualitative shift when that happens. And that happens about four miles per hour, give or take, depending on a person's height. And so that's generally, you know, in training, um, that's the pace that we'll aim for unless the loads get really heavy or the march is going to be long and then we'll aim for a significantly slower pace. So you had in, in one of your articles, and I kind of wanted to run down this list, but you highlighted some uh, factors that lead uh, to improved rucking performance. And I think there's some surprises in here, maybe surprises for the general audience um, that might just tend to think, oh, well, rucking is just an endurance activity um, and maybe things that are good training for rucking or things like running and things like that. But there's some surprises in here. So let, let me run down the list and then I just love to hit each of these points with you individually uh, and learn more about them. So things that lead to improved performance are height, strength, aerobic fitness with some caveats. Uh, body fat reduces performance. Lean body mass increases performance. And then unloaded running ability is not that important. So let's let's talk about each of those, uh, starting with height. I think this might be one of the more obvious ones, but how is height an advantage for uh, rucking specifically? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you'll see it if you see a bunch of people uh, rucking in a pack. The person out front is the big six foot four guy. You know, he's just got a really long stride length and whatever weight he's carrying is going to be a smaller relative load for him. So you just not you know, whatever condition you're in, you ain't beating a big six foot four guy. I mean, that guy's going to be, you know, the the top of the pack in terms of rucking. Um, and that's, you know, it's primarily stride length and size. Um, that guy's just going to have some, some advantages, just more muscle size that, you know, whatever weight you're carrying, it's not going to be that heavy for him because he's just a big guy. And, and, you know, conversely, that guy might, might not be a good runner at all. <laughs> you know, and I've seen that several times. So the big guy, uh, in fact, here's where I first noticed this. I went to a course w- way back in the late 90s at the Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Training Center. It's kind of the backside of Yosemite. And um, every morning we would do a run, an unloaded run in, in, the, in the hills up there, a pretty tough run. And then we'd, you know, we'd have breakfast, we'd go in the classroom for a while, then we'd load up packs full of climbing gear, you know, food, water, all kinds of stuff. And we'd walk up to the training area a few miles and what I noticed was um, I was, you know, I was kind of a middle of the pack guy on the runs and a middle of the pack guy on the rucks. And I noticed that the people in front of me and the people behind me kind of swapped. <laughs> so on the runs, it was the little small skinny guys who were out front and the big guys who were just sucking wind in the back and dropping off the back. But then in the afternoon when we put packs on, the big guys were up at the front smiling, having no issue at all. And the little skinny runner guys were falling off the back. It was exactly the opposite. You know, and um, that's, you know, when I really started uh, thinking about rucking, you know, pretty early on and, and looking at some of the research curiously and found exactly what, you know, what I laid out in that list. 
does, does the big guy does that change over a 12 hour ruck uh, i just think about that that bigger body and more moving more mass do they does endurance get affected or is it doesn't matter if it's one hour or 12 hours he's always going to be in the front well i mean to some extent it depends on conditioning so i mean if you have um you know if they all have reasonable conditioning then the big guy's still going to be out front in 12 hours because relatively speaking you know this load's not that much you know if i'm six foot four 220 and you're uh you know five ten 160 pounds and we're both carrying 80 pounds you know that big six foot four 220 guy the 80 pounds is that much to him but Mm. but the 160 pound guy that's a lot you know and so uh you know with reasonable conditioning the big tall guys still still lead the way even for a long ruck it's just Life's unfair. The big six foot four, six foot five guys is always going to be better at rucking. <laughs> so one of the factors that leads to performance uh, to continue on that same train of thought, really strength matters a great deal and aerobic fitness matters, but not at the expense of strength. And so I think oftentimes when we think of hiking and even hiking with weight, we focus so much on the endurance side, but help us understand how strength plays a role, maybe even a more important role than just aerobic fitness. Yeah. So um, everything has to be taken in in context. And um, let's see if I can uh, be uh, somewhat clear on this weight. The weight that you carry in matters a lot. So, um, you know, in the military, we think in terms of heavyweights, you know, in excess of 80 to 90 pounds, so 100 pounds, 110, 120 pounds, that kind of a thing. So we're always thinking about heavy rucking because that's the experience. That's that's what we're going to be doing. And so um, when I make that that statement, that's what I'm thinking about. It's heavy rucking. But, um, you know, um, when you're rucking lightweights, aerobic capacity and endurance matters more than strength when you're rucking heavyweight strength matters a lot more and you could see that it would be sort of a sliding scale and some point in the middle they would probably be both about equally important does that make sense yeah for sure and so you know i don't know for sure where that point is but looking at the research and providing an educated guess i'm guessing somewhere around you know 35 to 45 50 pounds somewhere in that range is where they're probably contributing fairly equally you know um, when you get above, you know, somewhere between 35 to 50 pounds, then strength matters a lot more. And so, you know, the rucking research in the military is focusing on the heavy stuff. And, and what they found is that running ability, just, you know, unloaded running ability, normally we're testing like a three mile run for time or a mile and a half run for time. Just, it just didn't predict ruck performance very well at all. And, uh, in that case, we're talking about rucks, uh, uh, you know, the rucks that they're normally testing were 70 pounds to 90 pounds, that kind of a, uh, a thing for the test, you know. Um, so the ability to ruck 70 to 90 pounds, unloaded um, running ability was just not that predictive. But strength alone was pretty predictive. But if you combined um, aerobic capacity and strength, you got much better predictability. So both were important, but of the two, you know, when it comes to rucking 70 pounds or more, strength seems to be more important in terms of performance, how well a person performs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, in our, to make some, you know, sweeping generalizations in our context for hunting, a guy might be packing in for a multi-day trip carrying, 
you know, a, to, again, to make generalizations, let's say between 25 and 40 pounds, most often somewhere in that ballpark. So at that weight, there's maybe some aspect of strength that could certainly help with that, especially if you get up to the 40-pound side. But then coming out, if we're successful in carrying meat, I mean, loads are easily, you know, 70 pounds plus, you know, maybe in the triple digits if <laughs> you're getting pretty aggressive. Um, and at that point, that's when strength would matter a great deal, right? Yeah, and, and in fact, um, even with the lighter weight, strength might be significantly important if you're talking about some tough terrain. You know, so most of the most of the uh, ruck research in the military has been done on just basically flat terrain, especially the training studies, because it it simplifies uh, the study and it simplifies quantification, that kind of a thing. We haven't really done much of that same type of type of research in really tough terrain. So, um, you know, I could see 20, 30 pounds. You know, walking uphill is uh, becoming a bit of a strength challenge too, a significant strength challenge, much more than walking on flat ground. As we talk about strength, I want to be clear in what we are talking about. Um, and I, I'd love to get to kind of a ruck program overview that you have that's laid out pretty simply. But just to touch on strength really quick, um, I'd love for you to talk about if we're training strength in the context of rucking, um, not talking about training rucking itself, which we will talk about, but strength training to build up the base for rucking. What types of movements are we talking about? What types of, you know, weight rep set schemes are we talking about? Because I'm sure that there's some of us out here hearing the word strength and thinking, you know, back and buys chest and tries, and then other guys are hearing strength and they're thinking <laughs> power lifting. So let's talk about yeah. strength uh, in this context. Oh, okay. So, um, there's a really, so when I think about, um, strength as an exercise physiologist, I'm thinking about application or transferring strength to something else. So I'm, I'm not so concerned with, um, necessarily improving performance in the gym. I'm concerned with improving performance outside of the gym. Um, so, and and that's, that's the case with athletes. So, you know, if an athlete gets a lot stronger in the weight room, but they don't run faster, you know, throw farther, jump higher, then who cares? You're a failure as a strength coach. You haven't really enhanced performance at all. And so from that sense, in working with athletes, what we're concerned with is improving performance. And so when I think about strength training, I think about strength training as loaded movement. And that's a really important um, concept that's worth reflecting on for a second. Strength training is simply loaded movement. We're enhancing the ability to move under load. Um, and so I, I really like Dan John's concept of strength training. Strength training is um, loaded movement, and you load the the fundamental human movement patterns. And it's really simple. It's push, pull, squat, hip hinge, and then you know the last movement, which everybody kind of has a different uh, concept of. But I kind of think of it as um, whole body integration. Some people call it core. It's basically. Um, and Dan calls lo loaded carries, which basically is the same thing. It's um, it's basically transferring force from upper body to lower body with a real rigid core. Um, and it's, it's, a, um, kind of a, a whole body type movement. So push, pull, squat, hip hinge, and then, uh, core or loaded carries or whole body integration for that fifth movement, whatever it is. So when I'm designing a strength training program, that's it. I'm just thinking about those five fundamental human movements. I'm not thinking about buys or tries or traps or whatever, because, 
again, as Dan John likes to say, I think it's brilliant. You know, the body's one flexible piece. It's not a set of individual muscles that act individually. You know, when you swing a pack on your back or, you know, lift on a rock or per- perform something in sports, it's, it's everything. It's all muscles are integrating. And that's how we should train. There's, there's a difference between bodybuilding, which is, you know, isolate a muscle and annihilate it and training athletes, which is strengthen and integrate. I'm not trying to isolate. In fact, I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to bring more muscles in, into the action in an integrated way. And so we think in terms of training that way. And so, uh, you know, when we're training athletes or our soldiers, um, you know, for carrying heavy loads, we're thinking about big whole body movements, that, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it could be, you know, barbell movements like squats or deadlifts or standing overhead presses. There's some kettlebell movements that are great as well and some body weight movements that are great, but always focusing just on the five fundamental human movement patterns in reasonable rep ranges to produce strength, which is anywhere from three to 12 repetitions with the, you know, with the bulk of the training being somewhere around five-ish repetitions, plus or minus a couple, you know, the five rep range seems to be pretty ideal for building strength. And in the, the ruck pre, uh, program example that you've laid out, there's basically just two days of strength. Uh, you kind of pair a squat with a vertical push um, and then mm-hmm. some pull and core. And then the alternate day, the second day of the week that's focused on strength would be the hip hinge, a horizontal push, a pull and a core. Um, yeah. So two days really is, is sufficient for making those improvements. Yeah. So, well, there's a lot of ways to organize strength training. So, um, if we look at what, what athletes do, like let's say football players, for example, there's an off season training program and there's an in season training program. And, um, you know, what happens is, is they look a lot different and off season when players are not participating in their sport, um, you know, they're going to recover a lot better. There's a lot more time to train. Um, and so they can focus on a little bit more frequency, but, uh, during the season when athletes are uh, actually playing and practicing a lot, you'll oftentimes find their strength training reduced to two days a week. Um, and so, um, you know, if you're purely just a strength athlete, then you probably can train more frequently, but when you train in multiple qualities, then, uh, something's got to give basically. And, uh, what we find is two days a week is plenty. In fact, for some athletes, um, even if they're purely strength athletes, two days a week is probably more ideal for me. Now I'm 50 years old, two days a week, uh, is, is ideal. I don't recover well from three days a week anymore. And two days a week is is pretty optimal. But the other part of that is that, um, a heavy ruck session in itself is strength training. And, uh, it's kind of a combination of a strength and an endurance training session. And so now if I'm training in the weight room twice a week and I'm rucking once a week, I'm essentially strength training three days a week. So that ruck training kind of tempers how often we can strength train. And so uh, we found that to be very effective at building strength. And in fact, even for younger guys, two days a week is about, you know, at least 90% as effective as three days a week anyway. There's just not that much difference in uh, how well people progress. Um, so we found that to be a, a pretty good, um, a pretty good frequency when combined with rucking and running, um, that allowed people to recover really well and seem to be pretty close to ideal. 
It's good news. We don't have to be in the gym like every day doing the same thing. <laughs> we can actually get outside and rock and run and do some other stuff, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk and, about. And that's a, yeah, and that's just. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Finish that thought. I'd love to hear it. I'd, I'd rather. I'd, I'd rather. I'd rather answer your questions actually. So oh, okay. <laughs> I want to make sure I answer all the questions that you might have. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just wanted to get into. You know, we talked about. Okay, let's is. Uh, is preparation for hunting season for us is preparation for carrying some weight in the mountains you know strength is a good thing let's get a strength base and we can do that with two days a week so I think that's good news um, and you know we don't have to do the whole bodybuilding thing or bro split thing but we can do these fundamental movements two days a week I'd love to just get in now on the actual uh ruck training side of things so i want to understand how often we should be rucking and then talk a bit about you know um, this idea that you've looked at with endurance rucks versus intensity rucks in terms of you know going heavy versus going long and get into all that but first um just your thoughts on how often so i know that you've kind of laid out and and looked at research there's a, a case to be made that you know once per week can be quite beneficial doing something three times a week you don't get that much more gain so we talked about that a little bit with strength but talk to that uh about rucking now specifically is once a week enough or is there gains from going twice is there danger in doing too much uh how does all that play out yeah so um so most of the research has been done with uh with our ground forces are grunts so we call them you know so marine corps combat infantry and uh, army combat infantry and um, if you're an infantryman you're lifting weights and you're running i mean that's just part of the lifestyle and you know the same in the studies so the way the studies were conducted is you know we took um ground troops who were uh lifting weights regularly and running and started to insert ruck training um, in with their normal training program. So, you know, it's not uncommon for, for grunts to run four or five times a week. And so, uh, the idea was to replace, to start replacing some of that run with rucking to determine what's the optimum frequency of rucking. And what was shown was, um, what a ruck once per week seemed to be pretty ideal in that context that rucking more than once a week, uh, we actually, tended to see um, lower levels of improvement than rucking once a week. And in some studies, um, rucking once a week and twice a month were pretty close to equivalent. We really couldn't see that much difference in other studies. Once a week was maybe just a little bit better. But uh, keep in mind, this is in the context of people who are weight training and running uh, both. And so, you know, what do we learn from that and, and from other studies as well? A couple things. One is you can get better at uh, rucking from weight training alone. Um, a little bit, not a whole lot, but you can get better at rucking from weight training alone. With no running and no ruck training whatsoever, you will be better at rucking. If a person just runs alone, no strength training, just running, they're not really going to get better at rucking. Just a little bit, maybe with light loads, but the types of loads that we're measuring, you know, over 70 pounds, 70 to 90 pounds typically, not going to really show much improvement. However, if a, if a person's strength training and running and no rucking, we see a pretty significant improvement in rucking ability since rucking is uh, related to both of those. But if you really want uh, the highest level improvement, well, 
strength training, running, and rucking. And so how much rucking? Well, it seems like once a week, uh, according to the uh, uh, Army studies. Mostly these are Army studies. And so the optimum combination um, that they settled on was, um, you know, a strength training program, a running program, and then rucking once a week seemed to be most ideal, um, you know, in the context in which this, this stuff was studied with, you know, basically, you know, young men, 18 to, you know, to 25 or so years old and fairly decent shape. So in that case, it makes a lot of sense. Once a week is pretty doable. Um, and that was good news for the army because the, uh, rucks are logistically hard to put together. It's easier just to have folks go out and run in the morning than to plan a, a, a long ruck, that kind of a thing. So reducing it to once a week, um, was nice logistically and it seemed to work out best uh, training wise. Now keep in mind if a person's not running, for example, um, or not weight training, then rucking more frequently would probably be ideal. It, you know, it's the idea that that ruck is an extra strength and endurance workout wrapped up into one. And that's why the lower frequency was probably better. It, it prevented overtraining from, from doing too much strength or too much endurance. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm thinking that, you know, something uh, to take away from that, we let out this two days of strength. I could see where maybe as hunters, we would want to do uh, two days of rucking if possible, but make one of those a bit uh, heavier and shorter, a bit more intense, and then one of those a little bit maybe lighter and longer. So we're kind of, we have two days of ruck training, one's more focused on that heavy side and one's more focused on the endurance side. And so we're kind of training both uh, the pack in and the pack out, if you will, um, in terms of the lighter load and the heavier load. Um, you've looked at endurance rucks versus intensity rucks and even specifically on the intensity side doing things such as um, interval rucks walk us through that and maybe some of the benefits there yeah so I, I think what you say makes a lot of sense you know if if i'm a grunt already running four or five times a week then rucking once a week is that's you know that's going to be about the most i want to do especially with strength training but if i'm if i'm a hunter and i'm strength training twice a week and i'm i'm not running five days a week then yeah, rucking twice a week probably makes a lot more sense. Um, and yeah, there's been a lot of research looking at endurance rucks versus uh, intensity rucks. And the difference is an endurance ruck might be something like uh, loading, say, 30 pounds, 25 pounds, something like that, and walking for a long time, you know, maybe uh, two, three hours, four hours. Whereas an intensity ruck would be loading a pretty heavy weight, so say in excess of 90 pounds, um, and doing it as a series of intervals, like let's say four times 15 minutes would be uh, a pretty tough, um, and, uh, intensity ruck. And, um, what the research has shown is that the intensity rucks, um, improve performance of heavy rucking, of course, because it is heavy rucking, but it also improves performance of the longer, lighter rucks. So you get better at basically all kinds of rucking when you do the intensity rucks. Um, so if, you, uh, if you're training with a heavy weight, do an interval style training, you're going to be better at heavy weights. You're going to be better at going longer with lighter weights. Now, again, keep in mind, this is in the context of soldiers who are also running. Um, but the opposite was not necessarily true. Uh, the groups that only did light long distance rucking got better at light long distance rucking, much better. But when it came to heavy rucking, 
they did not necessarily improve. So, you know, for somebody that's time constrained, it just doesn't have a lot of time to get out and spend hours rucking, um, you know, loading up a heavy pack and doing intervals makes a lot of sense because it's going to improve your ability to go long with a lighter weight as well. You know, and in your context, maybe it's ideal because, you know, in, in the end you're, you're hiking in with a light load and then, and afterwards you're hiking out with a heavy load. So at some point what this, what, what the research is saying, you know, for your application, you got to do some heavy rucking, you know, um, (laughs) Because the light rucking is not really gonna uh, gonna help that much with the heavy uh, with the heavy load rucking. With that interval format, you mentioned kind of the uh, four rounds of fifteen minutes with a heavy load. What type of rest would you maybe recommend uh, placing between each of those rounds? Um, I mean, I would rest long enough to recover so that I could maintain a, my constant target pace with with the uh, the heavy load. And so, uh, um, you know, with uh, you know, with the army and the Marine Corps, when they're doing really structured training, um, if, you know, if they're rucking on flat terrain, they typically have a very planned out pace and they know how fast they're going to go. And you either keep up with the pack or you fall off the back. And the idea is to rest long enough that you can, um, maintain your pace. And so normally we're talking about somewhere between three and four miles per hour. So I want to rest long enough to be able to maintain that pace for all of my planned intervals. Um, how long that is is just going to depend on what kind of condition you're in. Um, and so it's probably going to take a little bit of experimenting. And, you know, early on in your training program, you might need more rest. And later on, you might not need much rest at all. I can tell you that, um, you know, when we look at rucking really heavy loads, what do people do to uh, sustain performance as far as work to rest ratios and uh one group that's been um, studied pretty extensively are the uh, Sherpas in Nepal who will carry sometimes in excess of 100% of their body weight and uh, can carry it for long durations pretty fast. So they're, you know, some of the best, I guess, ruckers in the world. And when we look at what they naturally do, they naturally have about a 2.5 to 1 work to rest ratio. Um, with those really heavy loads, that's just sort of where they fall naturally. And, uh, they can sustain carrying that load for a long time with a 2.5, uh, to one work to rest ratio. So that's probably in the ballpark of somewhere where you might want to be for the really heavy, heavy loads, two and a half. So, you know, 2.5 times as long on the ruck phase as the rest phase. So we have two days of strength and I'm, kind of piecing this theoretical program together somewhat based off of a template, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to translate it to, um, to hunting here. So two days of strength, yeah. maybe two days of rucking one heavier, uh, interval based intensity, one maybe mm-hmm. lighter and longer, uh, more for the, uh, endurance aspect. In some of your programs, uh, you filled in an extra day or two days if you have it with, just a standard run and or a conditioning day. Um, walk us yeah. through those and how they would play uh, a role in a program and a benefit to hunters. If we did two days of strength, potentially two days of rucking and then filled in with a run and or a conditioning day. Yeah. So, um, I mean, normally when we're training for endurance, um, the, uh, you know, in order to adapt, optimally we would need at least three days a week of training for uh for endurance for aerobic capacity and endurance improvements 
Um, and so that's why I added in an additional run or a conditioning day, um, in addition to the two rucks. Um, now, you know, we're just looking for an additional endurance day. You could throw in a third ruck, you know, um, the, uh, the studies that, uh, that showed that one ruck per week was optimal again, was in the context of, uh, combat infantry running four to five days a week in addition to the ruck training. And so if we remove that element, then one day a week is no longer optimal. You know, it's a completely different context we're talking about now. And so now, you know, we would be looking for some type of aerobic endurance training uh, three days a week or, or more frequently if you have the time or the ability to recover from it. And so in that case, to simplify things, a couple of rucks and a run makes a lot of sense, you know, but if, you know, if you're just dedicated to rucking and running is not your thing, then a third ruck uh, during the week makes a lot of sense and, um, or uh, uh, some type of other conditioning, <clears throat> you know, some type of a conditioning workout, sort of like a, um, a metabolic conditioning type workout would also be beneficial. But, um, you know, a run would probably be something that's simple or ideal or, or just an additional ruck. Have, with the research that you've looked at with rucking, I'd love to, to hear any insights into specific things on technique or form, posture, gait, kind of like the technical aspects of rucking. Is there anything that stands out maybe that we should know or understand or assess in our own approach to rucking on the, the kind of mechanical end of things? Yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, so a couple things. So, um you know, one of the, one of the things I've experimented with personally through a series of, uh, of, uh, running injuries, I tweaked the heck out of my knee surfing and, um, and couldn't run for a while, but I found that I could ruck no problem at all. And so, uh, spent months rucking instead of, uh, running and, uh, and looking at the biomechanics studies on rucking, one of the things that you notice right away is that, um, the ground reaction forces are lower. So ground reaction forces are the forces that you're putting into the ground with your feet or that the ground's putting into you, you know, through your feet, basically. So ground reaction forces. Um, so in running, those ground reaction forces can be three to four times your body weight. And in rucking, since it's a walking gait and not a running gait, we're talking about, you know, one and a half to two and a half times. And so unloaded running we've got actually greater ground reaction forces than even heavy rucking. And so you might suspect that rucking would be, um, less, uh, uh, less of an injury stimulus than running is. And that's been my experience when I've had running injuries, I can go right to rucking without really having too much of a problem. Whereas running is still, you know, the ground reaction forces are much, much higher. So, um, so that's good news for people who are training for rucking that you could probably, um, you could probably, uh, have somewhat lower expectations of injury than the same amount of running because the ground reaction forces are lower. Um, now what's been shown biomechanically is that there's very little change in walking gait with a load until you get to about 70 pounds or so. And so, um, biomechanically your walking looks pretty much like unloaded walking, very, very close to unloaded walking until the load gets to about 70 pounds. And then it starts to um, undergo a pretty big shift. And so uh, um, probably don't have to think too much about 
um, biomechanics or gait until you start to get to the heavy stuff. And then it becomes pretty significant because your form really changes. And, um, you know, the things I focus on in rucking are some of the same things I would focus on in running. And that's just stabilizing the hip. Um, when, when the hip is destabilized, then, um, you end up with issues with, with the back or the knees or the ankles, something, something is moving out of, out of its normal plane and causing stresses. And so first and foremost, we stabilize the hip. And so, you know, what, what does that mean? It means walking, um, or running with good posture. Um, and, and so it's similar, except with heavy rucking, there's a little bit of forward lean that we wouldn't want with running. And the forward lean is just to move the weight that's on your back toward your center of gravity. So there's less effort associated with rucking, but, um, but otherwise you, you want a really stable core. You don't want your hips rocking forward into the anterior pelvic tilt or excessive, um, excessive curvature of the low back. Um, you don't want excessive lumbar curvature. So you want a really solid, um, core with the hips sort of rotated to neutral and locked down. You want to walk with soft knees. So one of the things people can do, especially when they get fatigued and you'll, you'll notice this, uh, walking if, if you, uh, you know, if you're walking for a long time, and you start to get tired. People transition to what I call the lazy gait. They're landing with their knees just about locked out, and it totally disengages, or not totally, but it it disengages a lot of the muscles of the hip, and so the hip uh, no longer becomes stable, and it's kind of uh, bone hanging on bone, and and so. Um, instead of the muscles locking down the hip, the hips kind of hanging on the ligaments. And so that's a lazy gait when people walk with their knees locked out and their hips kind of loose, the hips start to swing side to side. And it's something you never, never want to do under a load because that places a lot of lateral shear forces on the knees and the hips and uh, a lot of stress on the low back. And that can happen with fatigue. Um, and so a good strong gait pattern would be, um, um, landing with what I call soft knees. So you're landing with slightly bent knees and a strong, stable core and lockdown hips. So focusing on um, tall posture, even if you're leaning forward, focusing on tall posture, uh, really um, stable hips and landing with soft knees and preventing the hips from swinging side to side. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> it does, yeah. No, it just it, it makes me... Uh want to think of a few things guys who complain about um you know maybe recovery or even specific issues say it's low back say it's knees say it's hip flexors um you know when they're post-ruck i know that's open-ended and there could be a lot of different things going on but any specific just in general for rucking uh prehab or rehab type work whether that's stretches or specific uh, calisthenics type movements that you think would be beneficial for guys? Yeah. So most people have the same issues <laughs> and I discovered this, um, looking at, uh, many, 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 many runners and, and videotaping. So I did lots and lots of videotape, uh, video analysis of, uh, run form and run gate. And, uh, you know, most of these were, uh, were young guys in pretty good shape, <clears throat> but I, you know, I did a, a wide variety of people and, and, you know, did some flexibility and some strength testing along with the gait analysis. And what I discovered is most people have the same issues. And uh, what you see 
uh, the weaknesses that you see in running are going to translate to rucking as well. And for most people, it's um, stabilization of the hip. And so um, most people have a hard time stabilizing their hip under load. So in running, that means when that lead leg hits the ground, instead of the hip locking things down, the hip um, doesn't engage properly. And so the hip slides out laterally. And, uh, um, and when the hip slides out laterally, it places a lot of stress on the lower back. It places, places lateral stress on the hips and the knees. And the same person that's having that trouble while running is going to do the same thing while rucking. And, you know, where the pain shows up just depends on where the weakest link is. For some people, it's IT band pain that can show up in the knee or the hip. Um, for other people, it's lower back pain. And, uh, so it's the same issues. And so what I always do with runners is I focus on strengthening the hip. And so, um, uh, the muscle called the, uh, glute medius, which is kind of on the lateral side of the hip, um, is one muscle that just becomes really, really weak. <clears throat> and so, uh, we focus on glute medius exercises. So I like things like, um, lateral bounds. Um, which is basically jumping laterally um, from one leg to the other. I like um, side planks with uh, leg lifts. So a side plank, um, in order to stabilize, you got to really, really engage the glute medius. And I also like a lot of single leg work instead of um, uh, uh, barbell back squatting. So, you know, if you're rucking and carrying a pack up a hill, it's a single, it's a series of single leg step ups. So I like uh, loaded box step ups and single leg squats. And if you can do, you know, a good single leg squat without, um, and, and keep a good stable hip, then that's a good foundation. And I find that, uh, you know, most of those runners that I dealt with that had real hip stability issues, couldn't do a single leg squat and keep, uh, hip stability. And the way you know, you're keeping hip stability is if, if you do a single leg squat and your knee caves in, if it caves inward, that's a real lack of hip stability. So it's one of the tests I've tended to do with runners is just a short single leg squat, six to eight inches of squat on one leg. And if the knee had immediately started caving in, then I knew they lacked hip stability. And when I did that, inevitably, I would see the same thing on the run. So I take a runner, I do a single leg squat, they squat down six to eight inches. If the left side, say, caves in, but the right side's stable, you know, what would I see while they're running? Well, when their left leg hit the ground, that hip would basically release. It was not stable. And I saw it in the squat and I saw it in the run. So, um, uh, so we started using some glute medius exercises and some glute exercises and single leg squatting to really stabilize the hip. And so single leg strength work, I think would be really ideal for people who are carrying loads on their back, especially, you know, up and down hills, that that's where I would focus the leg strength work is single leg work. Cause you could get pretty good at, at uh, two legged squats, but still not have hip stability. Cause in a two legged squat, my right leg is, is stabilizing my left hip and my left leg is stabilizing my right hip. And so I'm not really forced to stabilize my hips with two legged squats, but one legged squats, you really are. And you can also pick up on, uh, on lateral left, right differences. So, um, that, that's the kind of thing I would focus on. For runners, we do some things with jump roping because it's a, um, it's a, a quick turnover, high-impact kind of a thing, but that would be less relevant for, for rucking. I would focus on, um, you know, glute medius work, uh, 
some uh, strong core work, some, uh, you know, some uh, bridges and planks, that kind of a thing. And single leg squatting would be really, really uh, good stuff for uh, somebody who's focused on rucking. Yeah, man, that's good stuff, Mike. Um, anything come to mind that we didn't cover that might benefit us as we prepare to uh, pack some gear in and then hopefully pack some meat out of the mountains uh, under some load? Anything, you know, any gaps that we just kind of didn't hit that come to mind? Well, you know, I would always say... Um, keep it simple. So the, the biggest mistake I see most people make when they start thinking about training programs is they just add too much and it gets too complicated too quickly. Um, so the simpler, the better. And it's the simple things that make the biggest difference, you know? So, um, you know, when I, when I design a, a training program for whatever, you know, whatever it is, and I've trained people for all kinds of things, I'll write out a program until I think it looks pretty good. And then I'll start pulling things out. So I'll look at it and say, what could I pull out? Like if I had to pull something out, what's the lowest priority thing here? What could I pull out? And I pull something out and I pull something else out, and I pull something else out. When I get to the point where I feel like there's nothing more I could pull out, like if I pulled anything else out, I'm really going to be compromising this program. Then I know it's perfect. <laughs> the program is right on, you know, whereas most people, what they do is they write a program and start adding things in. And when they can't think of anything else to add in, then they feel like it's perfect. It's exactly the opposite, I think. Um, keep it as simple, as simple as possible so you can focus on quality and what you're doing. So the idea is a focus of quality rather than quantity. And so, you know, if I'm a hunter and I'm thinking about um, a ruck training program, yeah, I just want it really, really simple. You know, my strength training program, a couple days a week should just be a few key movements, you know, maybe some single-legged squats, maybe some, some loaded hip hinging, you know, uh, you know, just the five fundamental uh, human movements, push, pull, squat, hip, hinge, core, maybe one exercise per movement, keep, you know, focusing in the productive rep ranges and, you know, some simple rucking, nothing really too complicated. Um, just keep it really, really simple and focus on really good quality movements and, um, you know, doing what you do really, really well, the few things that you do. Yeah. Keep it simple. I think it's uh, not only good words for training, but almost every area of life. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Keep it simple. Quality over quantity make, you know, really makes a difference. And people have a tendency to think that the more complicated programs are better just because they, I don't know, just because they look more technical or they look more complicated. But, you know, if you, if you look at what the high speed guys are doing, they're, they're getting, you know, most of their impact from a few simple things um, carried over a long period of time. It's, it's consistency in doing something. That's the, 90% solution, you know, all the little details don't matter as much as consistency and in, in doing something. So I just keep it simple. And, and remember that, um, progressive overload is important too, you know, so there's gotta be some type of progression or some type of an overload. Um, so for a rucking, a ruck training program, that's either going longer or going heavier, not typically faster because, uh, you know, we're limited to, you know, somewhere around four miles an hour. And so that's, that's one of the things that's different from rucking and running with running. We focus on running faster because we want to get faster. Right. But with rucking, we're limited to about four miles an hour because beyond that, we're going to be running and we don't want to break into a run gate with a load because that's really, really high ground reaction forces and prone to injury. So that's one thing that makes rucking different. Our progressive overload is either longer or heavier. Um, those are the two things that we, those are the two things that you have to manipulate. So when you're writing a ruck training program, think about how you build those progressions in. 
um, longer or heavier or a combination of both. Got to have progressive overload if you want to increase fitness. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And even that, I mean, uh, uh, if guys are listening to this and think about putting their own stuff together, that doesn't have to be complex, right? It's a matter of, can I do what I did this week with five more pounds next week, maybe at the same pace, you know, like that is progressive overload, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's really simple. You know, it's just doing a little bit more than last time. And, uh, and you know, I would be conservative about adding uh weight or distance, you know, whatever you think you want to do, scale it back just a little bit, you know, um, the fit fitness is going to happen. There's a concept, uh, called minimum effective dose. And, uh, the Marine Corps looked extensively at this in uh, uh, basic training, for example. All of the military services have a really high injury rate in basic training, and it's mainly because of running. Um, and it's, it's gotten worse in recent years. I mean, we get people in. Uh, the Navy, for example, the fitness test is running a mile and a half, and I talked to the CEO of boot camp about this, that his problem was not necessarily people not being able to run the mile and a half in the cutoff time, that they just couldn't physically run a mile and a half period, you know? And so the services started uh, looking at um, how much running is optimal, that kind of thing. And what the Marine Corps found was really interesting that for the recruits that they got, the typical recruits that they got, the optimum running dose was 12 miles in a week. And if they ran less than 12 miles a week, then performance on their, uh, on their run test, which is three miles was not as good as running 12 miles a week. But if recruits ran more than 12 miles a week, they didn't run faster than the 12-mile-a-week group, um, but they had a lot more injuries. So when you went from, say, 12 miles a week to 18 miles a week, run performance didn't get better, but injury rates went up by like 30 to 40%. And so the Marines discovered with their population that the minimum effective dose was 12 miles per week, and more than that didn't get you more fit. It just got you more injured. And that's always the case with exercise. We're always looking for the minimum effective dose. It's like taking a medication. You want enough for the cure. If you take more than you need to cure yourself, you're just going to get more side effects, not more cure. And exercise should be thought of that way. We should always be striving for the minimum effective dose, not as much as you can take. You know what I mean? So that's another mistake people make is they think, um, how much training can I take, you know? Um, how much can I just sort of be able to do? Well, really what you should be looking for is the minimum effective dose. How little can I do and still get the maximum benefit? And so for most people, if they're motivated, you know, type A personalities, they're going to want to do more than they should. And so, uh, you know, whenever I work with people, my main job most of the time is getting to do less, <laughs> you know, they always want to do more than, than maybe they should. And so, uh, my, one of the, one of the things I do is give them, try to give them a little confidence and doing a little bit less like, Hey, let's, you know, let's not increase that weight by more than five pounds. I know it felt really easy, but let's just try a five pound increase this week and see how that goes. And we'll reevaluate it next week. That kind of thing. So just another consideration is probably, you know, and most people will know who, who they are, what type of person they are. I'm, I'm the type of person that's going to want to do too much. And so I know, you know, tempering it a little bit makes some sense. Well, that's a wrap, guys. Good luck training this year. I hope you can load up that pack system. Obviously, if you have any questions about pack systems, you can reach out to us, visit exomountaingear.com, or send us an email to support at exomountaingear.com about packs. If you have a question or suggestion for the podcast, you can just email us to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And as I mentioned, there are links in the show description. 
if you want to take a deeper dive into this topic and learn more from some of the resources that Mike has put online. We'll talk to you soon.